0: This marks part 6 of our series in the book of Joshua part 6 begins right now. And of course, if you've been here for the first 5 episodes of sort you know that this story is concerned with one major issue and that is land. That's that's really one word describing this whole book, land. Be- beyond the beyond the battlefields of Joshua, because we normally think of Joshua as the story of the conquest, and it is. But Beyond the battlefields, we remember that this is part of an ongoing story. This is uh, a sequel to the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, a sequel to God redeeming his people out of egypt out of slavery out of bondage and then fulfilling his promises promises that they've been waiting for centuries to be fulfilled will be fulfilled now will be fulfilled here in the story of joshua that god will give the people the land that he promised their ancestors And will give them rest. It is an invitation to us all, as Jesus' words echo this, this desire for rest, rest for our souls. Come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. For those of us looking for rest, rest beyond this world and in this world can be found. In Christ alone, no one else. And yet he offers it for all who come. And so, that's the backdrop of this story. And we begin in chapter 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men, that's important, From the people, from each tribe, a man, also important. Verse 3, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst, notice the location, out of the midst of the Jordan, that's where they're taking the twelve stones, also important, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes, the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? <laughs> then you shall tell them, but the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. One of the things I think in this block of verses that, that stood out to me right away is the reference in verse 2. Take 12 men from among the people. Now, typically, I don't make a huge deal out of numbers because people tend to over-spiritualize them, and that's not a good thing. Like, people will say, Oh, you know, I was reading, and I noticed the Ark of the Covenant, or excuse me, rather, I realized Noah's Ark had three levels. Why do you suppose that is? Oh, I know why it is. It's because it represents each member of the Trinity. No, it has three levels because God told Noah to build it that way. So, like that's, that's what I mean by like over spiritualizing the text. Like, okay, like why, why are there why are there twelve men here? Well, because it says it is one representative from each tribe, and the nation of Israel is made up of twelve tribes. And 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 yet this is really important it's an obvious point here but a reminder to us all and that is the reminder of this issue called unity one that came up a few weeks ago 12 tribes make up this nation not six or eight or nine and a half 12. it's an obvious point but one one worth mentioning multiple times in this text And of course, if you remember back in chapter 1, this was, I don't know, part 2 of our sermon series, uh, verses 12 to 14, there's this reference to the two and a half tribes. And if you have that map, you can throw it up right now, guys. There's a reference back in in chapter 1 that Joshua reminds them, the two and a half tribes, to make sure that they obey everything that Moses had told them to do. And the two and a half tribes are often referred to as the Transjordan tribes. And, and if you can see the Sea of Galilee and running from north to south is the Jordan River. And the trans-Jordan tribes are simply these two and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan River, on the right side or on the east side of the Jordan River. They're mentioned back in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. The half-tribe of Manasseh and then the tribe... Of the Reubenites and the Gadites, and of course we also explained a couple sermons ago the understanding of what because it's it's a twelve twelve tribes right make up this nation, and yet Manasseh, which was one of Joseph's sons, they have this massive tribe that is essentially divided into east and west, and. As we discussed a few weeks ago, even within the tribes there are clan divisions going on where, yes, Manasseh might be our father or our, our, our great-grandfather, our great-great-grandfather, but then we side with, all right, Manasseh had different children and maybe these, these sets of sons, they're over here and these sets of sons are over here. And so there's these tribe divisions, okay? Unity is an important part throughout this story and it's going to come up again today because there is the tendency for us to and for them to be lone rangers, and that's, that's a huge tendency today within the consumerism that is the American church, to just go it alone. Don't need other people, just, just do my own thing. Don't need to be part of a local church, just just doing my own thing. Don't have to be accountable, no one's going to hold me responsible. And so you see the two and a half tribes there, you can kind of see below Gad, we, we cut some of them off, but that's, that's where they are, they're, they're the Transjordan tribes, and it goes all the way back, really, the, the reason we have these two and a half tribes goes back to Numbers 32. Numbers 32 serves as such an important anchor point to, to really give some context here. Otherwise, the reference to verse 2 in chapter 4 won't make as much sense. But you go back to Numbers 32, and these transjordan tribes are having a conversation with Moses. So we're taking a flashback. Moses is still alive at this point. And essentially, they tell Moses, Hey, Moses... We don't want to cross over the Jordan. Say what? I imagine would be Moses' response. God, and, cause, and the reason is because God, God told them to. But these two and a half tribes, they say, we don't want to cross over the Jordan. We're fine right here. I'm paraphrasing much of Numbers 32 for the sake of brevity. But they say, we're good right here. This is perfect. We've got lots of animals. We like it. They like it. It's all good. We want to stay here. And, and Moses, when you read Numbers 32, he's a little upset. He's, he's upset, in fact, in verse 6, and I'll read it verbatim. It says to the people of Gad, the people of Reuben, shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Yeah, of course, you're good. You already have your land. Of course, you don't want to go over. You don't want to get your hands dirty. But more than that, why are you discouraging the heart of the people? That's the phrase he uses. And he goes on to say, your fathers did this exact same thing. Your fathers did this exact same thing. And, and the word he uses is, and they discouraged the heart of the people. And it's a reference back to when the spies were sent out into the land. To the spies, they came back. And of course, Joshua and Caleb were the only ones that had a good report. The only ones that had a good report. Everyone else had a bad report and... What they were guilty of other than a bad report is according to moses here in numbers 32 was discouraging the heart of the people discouraging the heart of the people just a quick little note it's really beneficial for all parties involved when god says to do something to do it to do it but it's really especially bad it seems here to when God says to do something, when you try to keep other people from doing the thing that God has told you to do. God's made it very clear what He wants in across the Jordan. And they are discouraging the heart of the people. Have you forgotten? Your fathers did the same thing. They wandered in the wilderness for how long? And as a result, no one over the age of 20 was allowed to go in the land. And here you are. Same song, same show. And you're saying, we don't want to. And you're discouraging the heart of the people. And of course, they get in this long conversation with Moses. They say, listen, that's not what we're doing. We just really want the land. And Moses is really upset here. And essentially, they come to this agreement where Moses says, fine, you can stay there. The two and a half tribes, the Transjordan tribes. He says, you can stay there. However... When the time comes to cross the Jordan, you better be there. Because this is not a nation made up of two and a half tribes. This is a nation made up of 12 tribes. And you better be there. And they, of course, reassure Moses that they will. And then he uses the phrase in Numbers uh, chapter 32. He uses this phrase that says, be sure your sin will find you out. Which was interesting because my mom would always say that to me and I never know contextually what it was about. She'd be like, be sure your sin will find you out. And I'm sure she'll be listening to this tomorrow tomorrow. But that's what Moses says at the end. He says, all right, if you guys fail to do the thing that you've committed to doing, if you fall back into the same, the same thing that your your parents fell into, this disobedience, and oh, by the way, discouraging the heart of the people, may it be really clear that your sin will find you out, that you will be held accountable. Remember what God did to their parents. God gave their parents a death sentence, okay? It sounds nicer when you wander in the wilderness, right? But he condemned them to die there. That's exactly what he did. this This aspect of unity, kind of important, kind of a big deal. And so, when we're in Joshua chapter 4, verse 2, and it says, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and then he, once again, in verse 4, says that again, right? Usually when people repeat things, and and sometimes I'll be up here and repeat things, and people will say, why are you repeating things? There's a point of emphasis, in the same way here it is in the text, right? And the point here, the obvious point, is unity. Unity. Especially understanding the backdrop and why Joshua reminded the people these two and a half tribes, in chapter 1, 12 to 14, and going all the way back to Numbers 32 as well, because there have been issues, issues, some lone rangers, some people who want to go it alone, do it themselves. That's why. That's why this is important to understand. And so he says, this is what we're going to do. One representative from every tribe, important, picking up the rocks, carrying them to the bank, Setting them up. Why? So when your kids come and they say, hey, mom and dad, why are those rocks there? You can tell them about what he did, about who he is. Why? Because we need to be reminded. We're prone to forget, our hearts are prone to wander. That's why. And so this perpetual reminder, this perpetual memorial is going to be set up. Verse 8, And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded, took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. This is where it gets kind of interesting. Verse 9, And Joshua set up twelve stones, Notice who's setting the stones up. And Joshua set 12 stones in the midst, notice the location, of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. I've never, ever noticed this before. Ever. I've heard the story, crossed the Jordan, they set up the rocks, as a reminder. Why? Because we forget. You've probably all heard some variation of that sermon before. But upon studying this passage, I saw something here I've never seen before. And at first glance, it seems to introduce, verse 9, a second set of stones. At first glance, it seems to introduce a second set of stones in the story that have not yet been mentioned. And so the first set of stones would be those that the twelve men, the one represented from each tribe, are supposed to take up from the middle of the river and then set on the bank, according to verse 3, verse 5, and verse 8. And yet, here in verse 9, it describes Joshua as the one setting up the stones in the middle of the river. Never saw that before. So how are we to understand this? Well, I think the New American Commentary makes a pretty good case for this. Were there, was there a second memorial? I mean, Joshua's obviously coming, Right? According to verse 9, he is setting up stones in the middle of the river, right? If this is the river, this isle, he's setting them up in the middle, right? Where, marking the place, apparently, where the priest stood holding the Ark of the Covenant, okay? So we, we have the rocks there, but how do we understand this? Well, the New American Commentary, I think, helps, I think, probably give the best explanation, and that is, Verse 9 probably is best understood within a parenthetical citation. Not in a chronological order. In fact, if verse 9 was going to be in a chronological order, it would be back at the beginning of chapter 4. I think what we see here is this. Joshua initially comes. He carries the rocks, according to verse 9. He sets them up as markers in the middle of the riverbed where the feet of the priests holding the Ark of the Covenant stood. And then, verses 3, 5, and 8. The representatives of each tribe come and they pick up the rocks from the midst of the river where the feet of the priest stood and then carry them the rest of the way to the other side. Understanding verse 9 not in any chronological order because it probably should come at the beginning of chapter 4 but also understanding that it is in these parenthetical citations. So then when it says in verse 9, and they are there to this day, and I quote, the there refers to the stones on the riverbank, not in the riverbed. So that when you read verse 8 and it says, And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodge and they laid them down there. There is the same there that the end of verse 9 is also referring to. Interesting. If you want to disagree with me, totally fine and say that there's two different memorials i don't know why there would be one because the one in the middle of the river you'd probably only be able to see during dry season maybe when the water was at its lowest point but rather what i think is happening is he carries it over he sets it up and then they come at the halfway point and they pick it up and carry it the rest of the way i think that's probably what is happening here And serving as this important reminder within the story. We push forward to verse 10. It says, For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan. We kind of knew that already. Until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people passed over in haste. At first glance, I think that phrase in haste can be a little bit misleading and confusing because the fact that they crossed over in haste can cause us or lead us to think that somehow there is a fear or another motivation that hasn't actually been mentioned that's not actually even in view within the text that is maybe pressuring them to, to do this. they gotta they got to act quickly, right? Maybe like the... The other episode where the Egyptians were coming behind them in the Red Sea. But but I don't think that is what is in view here. We have no reason, anything from chapter 4, to understand that they are somehow hurried because of fear or some other motivation. Rather, when we see the phrase in haste, they are able to cross in haste. They are able to cross quickly. And here's the important part, because of their obedience. Because everyone is doing right now what Joshua told them to do. And as a result, they're able to cross over in haste. They're able to cross over quickly because they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, this reminder, this theme of obedience. And this theme is continued in the next verses. Verse 11, And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. Verse 12 and 13, The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, here they come. The Transjordan tribes, they passed over, armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. Where did he tell them? Back in Numbers 32. We already talked about that. About 40,000 ready for war, passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. Pretty important point here. These trans-Jordan tribes, these two-and-a-half tribes, are once again being singled out. And they're being singled out, first and foremost, I think, for their obedience. Like, if you're making an observation, they're obeying God. They're obeying God. Back to Numbers 32. Remember, this was a big issue, this argument that they got in with Moses. They didn't want to cross. He accused them of being just like their parents were being disobedient and discouraging the hearts of the people but here they are and I think the first thing I oh, don't be very carefully don't miss this is the fact that they're obeying they're, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and yet there's a second observation to make here and that is of Israel's national unity 12 tribes make up this nation not nine and a half but, but 12 12 make up this nation and the thing is is did they have their land? Yeah. They already had their land, but they're there sending their armed men over just as they had promised to, just as they had committed to. They're there. You might say they're having a good week. They're having a good month. But they're still there and ready to help their brothers and this issue of unity seems to be such an an important point especially here in chapter four one that i think is really important not to go unnoticed for better or for worse yes they've got their land but they're there to help it's i think it's a really good reminder when we think about the application for this like okay unity is important where do we go with that it's a good reminder for us today within the church because quite frankly, we can get a little lazy, we can get a little apathetic and we can get a lot consumeristic. We really, really can. And church becomes nothing more than an event that we go to. I I was talking, I don't remember who this person was, pretty sure they're in here today, but they said something to me that was really, really great. Um, And you can remind me if, if you're the person after the service, but they said, yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine and I, I keep I invite him to come to all of our gatherings lcc and he 's not involved in a local church. He goes occasionally because like he likes this one church service and it's it 's just really cool and I flat out told him like if you 're just going because it 's a cool church service or the pastor is cool or funny, just listen to a sermon online I mean you might as well just listen to a sermon online because you 're no more really being a part of the church by going once a week to to, you know, just have this consumeristic mindset. You might as well just watch a a better sermon online if that's all you're doing. If that is all church is to you is just going to hear a sermon. And when he told me that, I said, you're absolutely right. This issue of unity is huge and it has such important application for the Christian life, how we should live in day-to-day community with our brothers and sisters. And for those of you who've ever been a part or come to lust-free living that we have, I tell guys all the time, we make a commitment for 10 weeks to be brothers, to be a family in this together. We make that commitment. And that commitment's not broken just because, well, you know, we were like, well, we had a really good week fighting sin and battling and dealing with purity. We had a really good week, so I didn't need to. And, And like I said, this is LFL, but this could easily be applied to any church gathering. We do not gather as the people of God because we had a great week and we were victorious over sin. No more do we gather with the people of God because we had a bad week and were were defeated by sin. We gather as the people of God because we are the people of God. The the transjordan tribes could have easily said, Hey, listen, I'm good. I read my Bible this whole week. You guys go on without us, right? We had a great... I mean, we've got our land. We've got our possessions. You guys go on without us. Because that is much of the American church today, this consumeristic, lone ranger, Christian mentality, which thinks that you're doing some great service to God because you come and warm this pew every week. If that's the case, you might as well just listen to a great John Piper sermon online. And that's what I mean, that that consumerism is something we have to battle with, we have to fight with, right? Why do we gather with the people of God? We gather with the people of God because Paul tells us in Romans 12, 15, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? That the church is much more than an event, it's a family of people. It's a group of people. It's not like a family, it is a family. That's the language of the Bible. That's not Joe paraphrasing things. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, treat the younger women as sisters. Right? They're your sisters. Treat the younger men as your brothers. That's not Joe interpretation. That's Paul interpretation. If you have a problem, you can take it up with him. With him. And this really emphasizes this importance of community. Israel is made up of twelve tribes. The church is made up of people from every ethnic, linguistic background. And the church is global. And yet, the local church is the expression of the global church. And that's why here we emphasize church membership. We had a membership class last week. And really, you know, some people get kind of turned off when it comes to church membership. What is that? I don't really know. That's all you say. Come to the membership class and you'll find out. But but really, membership is about covenant. It's about making a commitment, right? It's the difference between someone who's a regular visitor and someone who says, I want to be accountable. I wanna I want to be accountable to my brothers and sisters at this church, and I want to serve Jesus right alongside serving each other. Very Galatians chapter 6, 10, right? Do good to everyone, especially, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so that's the importance, right? Of these reminders. And there's a great article from the Gospel Coalition. We use it as part of our re-covenanting. We have everyone read it. And I want to just read a clip from this to, to give you a flavor. It says, covenants. Covenants, commitments, and remember, this is the covenant people of God, Israel, and today the church is the new covenant people of God, you might say. Understand this, covenants are made for the hard times, not the good times, the hard times. See, in the good times, we don't need covenants. In the good times, we don't need commitments because we can get by and stick together on feelings alone. We can Oh, man, is so good. Like, Joe is, like, the greatest preacher ever. Have you heard his sermons? Like, oh, my goodness. And then what happens when Joe doesn't preach sermons you like anymore? Or, man, small group was awesome, man. The time in my prayer pod was wonderful. Man, this last six weeks has been so rejuvenating. What happens when it's not that anymore? See that, uh, those covenants and the commitments? They're not for the good times. The good times you can get by on feelings alone. They're for the really hard times when you don't want to be committed anymore. The quote goes on to say, but the covenant communities hold us up when we are faltering. They pick us up when we've fallen. They encourage us when we're weary. They wake us when we're slumbering. They draw us out of ourselves. They call us back to our commitments. They call us back to our responsibilities. They invite us back into the garden of Christian community where we grow, end quote, Why? Because it's so easy to just be this lone ranger follower of God. There is a reason that he references its 12 tribes a representative from each tribe. You think they don't struggle with unity? I mean, Manasseh is broken in half because of clan divisions, east and west. You think they struggle with this? If this wasn't an issue, he wouldn't have mentioned it. It is no accident that the 2.5 tribes are signaled out for their obedience and for their commitment, their commitment to the whole nation, to the whole people. And we can certainly learn a lot from them because in this day and age in which commitments mean so little and our promises are taken so lightly to look and see, there's the two and a half tribes, there's the Transjordan tribes, and there they are keeping their promises, showing up, and obeying. They've had a great week. Life is easy, but they're committed because the covenant nation of God is made up of 12 tribes, not nine and a half. And there they are, just as they promised Moses, just as they agreed upon back in Numbers 32. What we press forward, verse, verse 14 On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the day of his life. Verse 14 is really this fulfillment back of the promise that God makes to Joshua in chapter 3.7. He says, "I'm uh, I'm, I'm going to, in effect, make much of you today, Joshua, so that it's clear to everyone that you're my man. And this is in fulfillment to the promise back in chapter 3 verse 7 Joshua is really in effect right now he's the new Moses and this is a big deal for a people who have only ever known as we've said one Moses one leader all their days I and mean, we we have a new president potentially every four years this is this is a people for really two generations have only known one guy and now Joshua very much it's clear to everyone through the miracle, this miracle. I mean, just picture that Jordan parting and walking over on dry land. It's clear that Joshua is their man, that he is appointed and ordained by God to be the new Moses. We keep going. Verse 15, and the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. Now, the ark of the testimony is a strange name for it, one that we see here occurring for the first time because we typically call it the ark of the covenant, but here it's called the ark of the testimony. And the testimony usually refers to God's testimony or God's covenant, covenant, commitment, But it, as we see here in other places, also can be used to describe the ark. Not only the ark, but also the tabernacle. Not only the tabernacle, but even the Ten Commandments themselves. This testimony, this word, can be associated and stand in for it. Well, then we come to 19. It says the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho on the tenth day of the first month this would have been march april this would have been roughly about that time and and this is important and you're going to see this a lot throughout joshua especially these first four chapters there seems to be this parallel where we have moses and the red sea joshua and the jordan this this seeming parallel between the two but this time period roughly March, April, this would have been an important day and it would have coincided with the day that the Passover lamb was to be selected according to Exodus 12, verse 3. The, the day that Passover lamb was to be selected and, and thinking about, okay, well, that was the same day. huh? that's interesting. That the Passover lamb is selected. Takes you back to the story of perhaps Passover itself where they selected the Passover lamb, killed it and took the blood from it, put it on the doorpost. The angel that God sends comes passes over that's why it's called passover passes over right kills the little ones of egypt and shortly after that the people exit out which is why it's called the exodus right they exit egypt only to cross the red sea on dry ground with their leader moses and so there there is this seemingly parallel between the two events the episodes and of course this day it happens to coincide roughly this Tenth day of the first month, March April, with the same day that that Passover lamb would have been selected. Exodus twelve three, and of course they're camped at Gilgal, and Gilgal is where King Saul was actually made king. If if you remember back to First Samuel chapter eleven verse fourteen and fifteen, it's also where Samuel judged in First Samuel seven sixteen, and then we come to our last section of verses today. It says, and those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan. Joshua set up at Gilgal and he said to the people of Israel and when your children ask their fathers in time to come what do these stones mean then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, see that parallel story, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And then chapter five, verse one, which I really think belongs with the end of chapter four. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, Oh, by the way, Amorites, Canaanites, as we mentioned last week, these terms can often be referred just in a generalized way, not necessarily singling out any certain ethnic background. Who were by the sea, heard the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Make no mistake. This story is more than just moving the people from point A to point B. This story is far more than God simply getting the people into the promised land. It is. lest you miss the text at the end of the story. I remember... 2003 I would have been a junior in high school and President Bush was on TV and he had just announced that hours earlier airstrikes had commenced against the regime of Saddam Hussein and the sky they had like the night vision camera on and the sky over Baghdad looked like the 4th of July and bombs and missiles were hitting it it was this amazing display of firepower just weakening and softening up the targets before they rolled in the ground troops. And you see some of the effects of the river crossing, of the Jordan crossing. In chapter 5, verse 1, this summary of the effects of the miracle. As one commentator pointed out, before Israel has fought a single battle, the entire land is hers. Chapter 5, verse 1 shows us this image of the warrior king who is fighting the battle for his people. They haven't fought a battle. And the kings of the Amorites and the Canaanites are already defeated. They've already given up. Right? I mean, who can go against this nation with their warrior king? their warrior god they've they've given up their hearts have melted very similar to the story and the account that Rahab tells back in chapter two like there's no military action it hasn't happened yet and they've already been defeated no this story is much more than simply getting them across the river like moving them from point a to point b Very much tied into the earlier point in verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. He is the warrior king. He is the warrior God. He fights for his people on behalf of his people. Before they even engage militarily with the enemy. He's lit them up. He's lit them up. He's softened them up. That's who he is, that's what he has done, that's what he is doing. Don't miss that, right? This is not just about getting them from point A to point B, getting them to cross the river. It's about making much of who he is, right? That all the nations might know. Verse 24. The hand of the Lord is mighty, right? They might know, okay? This would be like Facebook ads and Google ads and billboards and advertisements that the God of Israel He is God. He's the living God. The Lord your God, as Rahab says, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. That's who he is. And God wants it to be abundantly clear that they all know that too. And the kings of the Amorites and the Canaanites, their hearts have melted. And yet there is another reason. And that reason is the benefit for his own people. Notice the second half of verse 24. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. That when your little boys and little girls, and they come and they say, Mom, Dad, what's up with the rocks? Or what's up with the memorial over here? What's what's this about? We We can tell them what it's about. Why? Why? Because we're forgetful. Some of you... They remember 9-11? Maybe you thought about it every day for the first week, first month. But then eventually, eventually, you stop thinking about it. Why? Because we are forgetful. Why? Because we need reminders. Why? Because our hearts are prone to wander. They are. Right? So what's the benefit, right, that they might Remember? And some of that is what preaching's about. Some of you are like, I've heard this sermon or a variation of it before. That's great that you've heard it before, because you need to hear this again. We need to be reminded of these things. We walk out those doors, start forgetting about it. You say, I've heard a sermon like this before. That's wonderful. You read your Bible, or you say, oh, I I had someone one time, they said, I don't really want to read my Bible. Why? I've read it all before. That's okay. You need to be reminded of it. Especially with that attitude. Read it. Read it some more. Read it. Keep reading it. Why? We need to be reminded, right? So when they ask, you tell them what God did. And he says, oh, by the way, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And no doubt this fear... Which makes you think of what Solomon says, perhaps, in Proverbs 1-7, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there is wisdom in having this appropriate fear and awe of the living God of who he is. No doubt this fear of God will produce obedience and service to him. But it's really important that we understand this appropriately because otherwise we run the risk, and we said it last week, when we talk about God... Saying, oh, we need to fear God, right? Why? Because the Bible says it. Okay, we'll fear God, right? Or we say, oh, we need to remember God's holy. Why? Well, because he's holy, and if he's holy, you need to fear him. And if you fear him, you need to obey and serve him. And if you don't, man, you're here to be in big trouble, right? And thus, Christianity comes down and breaks down to nothing more than just Christian morality. Like, go and be a good person. And nothing more. more. We need to understand fearing God in the same sense we need to understand God's holiness, right? We're going to fear God. Okay. And as a result, we're, that's probably going to turn into obedience and service. But there are ways that we can outwardly obey God and even serve God that He is not happy with. I've told some of you guys this story before. John Piper, his son Barnabas, comes to him one day. He says, Dad, can I use the car? Sure, son, you can use the car. What do you want to do? I want to go out and see a movie. I want to see a game. It's really not important, the, the details. But he asks him, he says, can, can I use the car? He says, sure. But you got to remember, Barnabas, you've got to clean the car. You've know? you got, you got to wash it. And Barnabas is really upset, doesn't want to wash the car. And he begins arguing with his dad, telling him all the reasons why he shouldn't have to wash the car. But Piper sticks with his guns and says, listen, you've got to wash it if you want to use it. That's the rule. So Barnabas reluctantly walks out the door, slams it. You can probably hear him cussing under his breath, grabs the hose and scrubs the car down and washes it. Now I ask you, did he obey? Did he obey? Some of you might say, yeah. Some of you might say, no. Some of you might say, I, I don't know. Did he-, did he wash the car? Yes. Some of you perhaps are reluctant to say yes because of his heart, right? He had this rotten attitude, slamming the door, cussing under his breath. See, there's there's ways that we can obey God and even serve God that he's not happy with, which is why it's so important to understand this, right? The benefit is that you can fear the Lord all the days of your life, and no doubt fearing God will produce service, right? But there are ways that we can serve God and obey God that are evil, Case in point with the illustration. Psalms 100 verse two, it tells us, serve the Lord with gladness. Gladness, serve the Lord with gladness. There are types of service that God is absolutely disinterested in. There are types of service that are actually sinful, even though yes, outwardly you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, but your heart is very far from God in those moments. That's really, really important in understanding this. Start with the lower gladness, right? God loves a cheerful giver who gives from the heart, right? All these things that come back not to the outward action but rather to the inward joys and motivations. What's the benefit? That you may fear the Lord your God forever and no doubt fear is going to produce service and obedience but we know that there's a right and a wrong way to go about serving Him. So going back to the idea of fearing God begins with understanding who are we fearing? You say God. That's arbitrary. Who? Who is He? That's the right question to ask, I believe we said last week he is infinitely more valuable than anything in the universe gold is pretty valuable because it's rare god is infinitely more valuable he is the rarest of all beings he is totally permanent some of the reasons gold is valuable is not only that it's rare but it's permanent right pretty hard not only is he the rarest of all beings he's totally permanent he is alpha he is omega he has no beginning he has no end he is the i am and oh by the way unlike gold he is totally accessible through his son jesus right much of the theme of the story is land and rest and yet this is extended to us right in jesus totally accessible come to me all you who are heavy laden i'll give you rest you want rest you won't find it following what the world is saying to do the world is chasing after everything, much in the way that C.S. Lewis describes it. They're like kids in the ghetto making mud pies. And they have no idea what it means to take a holiday out at sea. They are far too easily pleased. The problem with the world is not that they desire to be happy, is that their desires to be happy are too weak. He compares them. They're chasing after all these things like sex and jobs and money and relationships. And he says, that's essentially the same as like making mud pies. And it gets so much better. And their desires to be happy are just so, so, so weak. When really, there's the holiday out at sea. Right? Come to me all you are... All you who are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And so we understand fearing God. We have to understand who he is. Otherwise, this comes back to the same place it did last week. And that's just Christian morality. Be a good person, nothing more. No, we're going to fear him. But oh, by the way, who is he? He is the rarest of all beings, rarer than gold, much more valuable than gold, totally permanent and totally accessible through his son, Jesus So when we say fear God, that's what we're talking about. Who he is. Fearing him. That's the benefit, right, of crossing the Jordan. The benefit is understanding who he is. So that when we fear him, it's not simply out of duty or obligation. Rather, it's because of who he is. He's better. Listen, you've got to see him as better. You've got to see him as more enjoyable. Otherwise, when you apply this to your lives, you'll fear him, you'll serve him, and you'll run the risk of not serving him with gladness of heart, as Psalms 102 tells us to. So as the band comes, I want to pray. Lord, Help us to remember, God, our hearts are so prone to wander away from you. Our hearts are so prone to forget these really, really important things, these stories that perhaps some of us have heard since childhood. And I pray, Lord, that they would take root in our hearts and our minds, that we would remember them, Lord, and that we would fear you all the days of our lives, but more so in just doing good things because we should but doing good things because of who you are and what you've already done for us. Help us, Jesus. Thank you, God, for these reminders. We need them. I need these reminders. And thank you that you are the warrior God, the warrior king who battles for his people. Amen.